morning, Rogers Park. I'm John McGill. I serve as the associate pastor here at Park Community Church, Rogers Park. Glad to be with you. Today we turn to the final chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16. Now, this is not our final Sunday. I'm going to preach the first half. Phil is going to preach the second half next week as he lands the plane through this journey of the letter written by the Apostle Paul to the early church in Corinth. And in the meantime, let me remind us where we're at. The church of Corinth was located in the city of Corinth, a Roman city, and in Corinth, we find a lot of immorality. It's very affluent. It's very commercial. There's many belief systems within the city that one could adhere to. And we find the church finding some of these cultural practices entering the church. Now, just to be clear, the church in the city is supposed to engage. We are not supposed to be out of society. The problem here, though, is when we find the church in Corinth, we read about it in this book, we see some of the practices causing disunity. And so the church needs to be able to sort this out better. It is no perfect church by any means. And by the way, there is no such thing as a perfect church. I had a seminary professor who said, if your church is not addressed by any of Paul's letters, then you go to the perfect church. That would be very weird. Well, throughout 1 Corinthians, we find Paul addressing a church in a season where it needs a lot of help. Throughout this letter, we find Paul providing clear instruction on a wide variety of matters, but most of all, he wants to stir up unity. And in doing so, he provides a clear message of hope. Might I remind us, we just spent the last four weekends in chapter 15 talking about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross on Good Friday, and he conquered death, and he rose from the grave on Easter Sunday. The resurrection is a once and for all final message of victory already won. It is the ultimate message of hope. And so today, as we begin to look at the final chapter of 1 Corinthians, we will find some very practical matters that Paul transitions to, wanting to relate to the Corinthians before he signs off. And we can better understand these practical matters if we view them in light of the resurrection that we just learned about. So let's dig into our text today and see where Paul wants to begin to land the plane here. Those of you that are following along, again, we are in chapter 16, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, even spend the winter with you, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. It's springtime. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Let's pray. 
Father, again, we bless you this morning. We thank you that you have given us your word. Father, that you have written this letter to the first Corinth, to the church in Corinth, Lord, and you have also written it to us, Father, because you care for us deeply. Lord, would you open our eyes and ears to hear what it is that you intend to communicate to us today, Father, and would, be, would we be receptive, Father? Would we apply these words to our hearts, conform us more into the likeness of Jesus, and bring you much glory? It's in your name we pray, amen. One of my favorite subjects to talk about is money. Now, it's not because I was in sales for 17 years, though that might have something to do with it. If, if the more widgets you sell, the more money you make. And if you work for a company, the more you sell, that, that governs kind of what products are developed and how they're tweaked. It also affects the number of jobs. And if you sell more, then there's more jobs created and so forth. But I like talking about money not because of what money is capable of buying, but more so because Jesus liked talking about money. Now, let me qualify that word like. Like is relative. 16 out of 39 of Jesus' parables had to do with money and possessions. 15% of all the words recorded in the Bible that Jesus said are about money. Jesus talks about money more than he talks about heaven. Now, for many of us, if we start hearing about money in the church, it invokes some kind of discomfort. Phil already got us started talking about money. He already preached half the sermon on generosity here, but we've got more to go. I don't know if you felt discomfort, but let me just propose this to us. We feel a discomfort because money, plain and simply, has a grip on us. We find difficulty understanding that all that we have has been entrusted to us, We view ourselves as stewards of money as opposed to owners. And we make purchases that we believe make, give us joy. There are things that I've bought that I think are kind of cool and they might be shiny and fun. And one time I, for instance, I bought this Mickey Mantle card and my wife Nikki thought that purchase was really stupid. (laughs) But I don't know, you know, I like looking at it. It's kind of cool. I think it brings me cheer. But I'll tell you what, I won't rule out that she might be correct. (laughs) But here's the thing, right? When we buy that shiny and fun object, the next thing we think is, what is the next thing that I can buy? See, like Jesus Jesus talked about money because he knows the human condition all too well. We never feel like we have enough And because of the human heart's condition, what we do with our money gets distorted often. Well, in our text today, we see the Apostle Paul asking for a collection. We're going to spend most of our time in the first four verses, and then we'll take a brief look at the next seven because they do have to do with the first four verses. Phil may talk about the next seven verses, the latter half, next week as well. We'll see. Ultimately, the question that we are going to answer today is, What does it look like to live out generosity in light of the resurrection? What does it look like for us to live out generosity in light of the resurrection? So turning to the text, we read, Now concerning the collection for the saints. Saints is a term referring to any Christian. Now here, Paul is talking about a particular group of Christians. He goes on, Collection for the saints 
as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. All right, what is this collection? This is not the first time that Paul talked about this collection. He brought this collection up to the Corinthians before, and we see that he also asked other churches to participate in this collection. Remember, Paul wrote this letter from Ephesus, so he would have asked the Ephesian church to participate in it. We also just read that he asked the Galatians to participate in it. If we read the second letter of Corinthians, the next book of the Bible, we see that the church of Macedonia participated in this this collection, even though they had very little, they still gave very much. But what is this collection? We find in verse 3 that the collection was a gift intended for the church in Jerusalem. So what's the circumstance in Jerusalem? Jerusalem was a very religious city, okay? And the church in Jerusalem was very poor. So here's, here's the problem, though. In Jerusalem, the faith there is overwhelmingly Jewish. Its economy relies on outside supporters. And Most of the church in Jerusalem are Jewish converts to Christianity. And so the Jews, which was the overwhelming vast majority of the people in Jerusalem that lived in Jerusalem, they did not want to associate with the Christian Jews. And so the Christian Jews had a lot of difficulty finding jobs in Jerusalem. Now, we may may remember Acts 2. We find there an awesome account of the early church. We read the believers in Jerusalem sold their possessions and shared what they had with one another so that their needs were met. This is a great picture of gladness and generosity that we still try to emulate today where appropriate. The issue, though, is there that over time, you still need streams of income to sustain the group. Shared resources, shared monies, particularly shared monies, get depleted over time, right? So this is fast forward 20 years, okay? The church in Jerusalem was very poor at this point. But God doesn't leave his people hanging, right? That is now why we find ourselves, God sending Paul across the Mediterranean, asking churches to support the poor in Jerusalem. God doesn't leave his people hanging. By the way, that is something very important to us here. We don't leave other churches hanging. As Phil said, we give money to churches in need. We give money to churches that are helping get set off the ground. We also give money to our church plants as well. Now, let me give you a little tidbit. We mentioned before, we're looking at verses that talk about practical and logistical terms that are typical at the end of Paul's letters. It's very common to overlook these things, but when we dig into them, we see more chatty, matter-of-fact, kind of more casual, relaxed language, and it often reveals Paul's most personal sentiments. And when we observe these things here in chapter 16, we find with Paul, this collection was very, very important to him. He knew clearly that collecting from all the other churches across the region for a particular church in need was a very clear word from God. With this collection, it would provide a very clear testimony to the watching world that Christians are a unified people of diverse backgrounds across the world, both Gentile and Jewish, who take care of one another, who are bonded together in joyful unity by the saving work of Jesus Christ. Here in chapter 16, we find Paul tapping into the Corinthians, which are an affluent group. Corinth was an affluent place, but affluence does not necessarily translate into generosity. 
Let's go back to Jesus' words. Phil gave us this account already. Remember the rich young ruler, right? We, find, we also find that account in Luke 18. He was doing almost everything right, just like we heard. And he came up to Jesus. He liked Jesus. He probably came up to Jesus with a smile. He's like, I'm doing everything right. Now, Jesus, again, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He's probably anticipating, well, Jesus is saying, hey, you're, you're the model faithful. But he was forgetting something. The rich young ruler heard from Jesus' mouth, sell all you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. It was a very difficult word for the rich young ruler to hear, and he became very sad, as we heard. He walked away because he was extremely rich. It was difficult for him. Money has such a tight grip on people. Can you think of any rich people that aren't content? Yeah, some of them aren't content. Some of them might be content. Maybe for some of us in our minds, though, we envision rich people always happy because that's what the world constantly projects and confuses us with. May it be known, it's very common to find billionaires who will gladly tell you that they are completely miserable, right? They seek out religious gurus. Some of them seek out Christian leaders. They, they are trying to find happiness because they know that they can't find it through money. And us, right, we think, boy, I really want this house. I want that house. The billionaire can buy them all. But he, she aren't happy. See the same thing with lottery winners, right? Google lottery winners that wish they never won the lottery. It's very interesting but they found a lot of pain through that money. As we read in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that many have wandered away from the, pay, from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The very thing that gives us pain and hurt is the very thing that we crave more of. Why do we want more of it? Well, being wealthy is not a sin. Growing a business is not a sin. Having a large house is not a sin, though it can be tricky. If you have a large house, you want to pray over that space, pray that God will use it. Because if you misuse those things, then it would be a sin. Followers of Christ are entrusted with God's money for God's purposes. And if you are wealthy and you're not giving away, that is definitely a sin. And if it's not given away sacrificially, but only because we have abundance, well, that is an occasion where we ask Jesus, we ask him, Jesus, how much am I supposed to give? And if it's made clear to us that God has said we need to give generously and sacrificially, then the next question we ask ourselves, would I be willing to do that? Our text out of chapter 16 here gives us helpful instruction in how we are to give In short, here are three principles that we can take from the text for how followers of Christ are instructed. Number one, giving should be regular. Number two, giving should be universal. Number three, giving should be planned. We're going to unpack each one. Let's start with the first one. Giving should be regular. The first part of verse two reads like this. On the first day of every week... This is referring to Sunday, the day of corporate worship. This would have been really weird for 
the, the Jewish converts, they would have been used to the Sabbath day of Saturday, but um, the reason why they switched it to Sunday was because that was the day that Jesus conquered death. That was the day of resurrection. So it makes sense that throughout the week, if there's a celebration day, it would be Sunday. And so, why does Paul say here on the first day of every week? Well, it's because when we gather together, we worship together. And when we give, that is also an act of worship. So it would make sense that when we give and gather, those are worshipful items that we couple together. Now, let me clarify something here. This verse is not necessarily signaling that we are to drop money in the offering bag every single week. It's not signaling that we need to go online and give four times a month. What is important is that we are giving regularly as a part of our faith habits. Jesus is shaping our hearts when we institute regular giving. Our hearts are not shaped as effectively if we were to tally up everything that we've made throughout the year, give it at the end of the year, give a portion of it, maybe even a high portion, and put that money into that, the internet box there and say, okay, here you go. We, will, we shall do this again next year. Check. No, that is very different from cultivating a rhythm and lifestyle of regular generosity. And we also don't give only when we attend church. Let's see, we've attended church twice a month, so that comes out to, to this much, and so I, I owe this much. That's not how we are called to give either. If we're not here, if we're not gathering, we are still worshiping. And the word says, set aside the money each week. It's a pattern that helps us spiritually. Nikki and I, we, if just for reference, we see what we've earned each week. We see the total for the month. Then we give the percentage of the gross total that God has placed on our hearts and our rhythm of giving to the churches 12 times a year, plus some one-off gifts. Everyone should give regularly. Giving principle number two, giving should be universal. In other words, everyone is supposed to give. In the middle part of verse two, we read, each of you is to put something aside. Now, giving is not just for the wealthy. Remember the widow with two copper coins in Mark 12. There were many rich people at the temple. They were dropping large stacks of coins into the offering box, and then along comes this widow. She drops two copper coins. Maybe we have a picture of it here. Two copper coins. Those were the smallest coins in the Roman Empire. They equaled one penny. So you can see those are fingers. Very small. This is the one slide I have for us, so I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Just imagine the sound, right? You've, you've got some folks, maybe some rich people, um, dropping stacks of coins into the offering box. It's making a big sound. And then you've got the widow who drops two copper coins into that box. Ping, ping. What is, his, what is Jesus' reaction to that situation? He turns to the disciples and he says, see that widow? She gave more than everyone else because that is all she had. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. If you are experiencing financial hardship, I'm not asking you to give. In fact, I'm telling you and all of us, the church will help those that are in need. 
And we do that here at Park Community Church regularly. We will pay rent for a month. We will pay hospital bills. We will pay a widow with children that needs to pay for groceries. In fact, we have a call with a widow who's in that situation this week. That is something that we do here regularly. If someone is experiencing financial hardship, I'm not asking you to give. But one thing that I will not do is refuse a gift from someone who has very little. Because there is blessing in giving. For that widow, God was her first priority, and she knew that God was going to take care of her. We can assume that she experienced joy in giving. We can assume that she experienced closeness with God in giving. And I don't want to deprive anyone of the joy of giving. And I can name for you pastors and Christian leaders, big names that many of us might know, even the world that not the non-church world would probably know some of these names that gave to God's church, even if they didn't have a church, they gave when they had nothing because they knew they were part of something much larger than their circumstance. And by the way, if, if you own a $500,000 home and go on a couple of vacations a year and eat out each week, but you're having trouble making a car payment, you're not necessarily experiencing financial hardship. You are experiencing God and Susie Orman telling you that you need to reorient your finances and be a better steward. And there's people here that would be happy to help. But you're definitely called to give. And sometimes when we do reorient our finances, that is an opportunity where we, be, where we become more generous. Maybe we make sacrifices. We sell that house. We sell that car because God is our priority. And the poor have the luxury of not having money taking the place in one's heart where God is supposed to be. We grow spiritually when we learn it all belongs to him. To be clear, God doesn't need any one person's money. God doesn't need any one wealthy person's money. God, goes without saying, doesn't need any poor person's money. God will never run out of money. There will always be enough money for God to use to build his church and to care for his people. But why does God still involve us in giving? It's because God wants our hearts. He knows that money is a test for us. And when we begin to loosen our grip on money, our trust in all God that has to offer to us grows. And if one person were to provide $100 billion for all the churches in our country, which theoretically is possible, well, that just doesn't work in how God wants to achieve his plans. That would leave a whole lot of hearts unshaped for achieving those plans. No, God in his kindness and grace involves us in the work that he is doing in building his church across the world. Giving is for all followers of Christ. Okay, so let's turn to giving principle number three. Giving should be planned. We read here, put aside something and store it up as one may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. All the statistics say that the smaller one's income is, the greater percentage their giving is. So what does that say for those of us with higher incomes? It says that as we make more money, there's a great portion of us that don't do our planning well. Learning to give properly is a vital piece of worshiping properly. Let me give you an illustration. When I first started giving to the church, 
I had no clue what giving as an act of worship looked like. Nonetheless, I still thought I was kind of a generous guy. And this would have been, you know, like 16, 17 years ago or something like that when passing the bags and physical offerings were more prevalent. And when the bags were passed, I carried this attitude like, hey, God, you know, I've, I've got some, some, a little, some cash in my pocket. I'm going to give you some of it because you're a great guy. You deserve it. God, take this. It's all yours. And if I was having a good week, right, I'd say like, hey, God, nice job this week. Awesome. Guess what? I'm doubling what I'm giving you. Take it. Take it, God. And then my favorite, right? Boy, God, you know what? Wasn't a good week this week, you know? Well, you know what? I'm still giving to you because that's the kind of guy that I am. <laughs> you know, this one isn't in the notes here, but uh, I just, if I don't say it, I, uh, it's going to be weighing on me. Um, there was a season, you know, like maybe two, three months, there was this pretty girl in the row, you know, that I would sit near. I actually never met her, still, still don't know her, whatever. She wasn't as Nikki, as, or as, as beautiful, as pretty as Nikki. Is that, did I, why did I stumble across that? <laughs> that just doesn't make sense. I don't know if, Nikki never, know, she never heard this story, you know. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I would make sure that she could see that I was putting money into the offering bag. So what's the problem with that? I wasn't planning my giving. Wasn't at all worshipful. It was all about me. Had nothing to do with what God had entrusted to me. Wasn't even that much relative that God, relative to what God had entrusted to me. Those of us that are least disciplined in our giving don't give as much because we haven't planned. Not only should giving be regular and set aside so that it's readily available to give, it should be proportional and increasing as one increases their income, as it says here also in the text, as you prosper. And increasing requires planning, or excuse me, increasing giving requires planning. Planning particularly, how can I be more generous this year or this season than the last? There's all kinds of wise planning decisions that you can make. Nikki and I, one decision that we made early on, we decided that our giving to the local church was going to be our largest expense, more so than housing. And as my sales and career increase, that, that planning, that, that changed. It, it became more, how can we be more generous this year than the last? And that required us to look at our, our budget spreadsheet and see where can we make room, where can we make adjustments. So not only did our, the amount that we gave to the church increase, the percentage that we gave to the church increased as well. And looking at the percentage of gross incomes that we make is a very spiritually healthy practice. It's an intentional setting aside of what God has entrusted to us, where, can we, where we can be assured that where, when we are receiving blessing, the local church and all that the local church gives to, the people of the neighborhood, the people in need, refugees, partner churches, all those people are receiving that blessing as well. And how much are we supposed to give? What percentage? That's the big question, right? How much am I supposed to give? Just tell me how much I'm supposed to give. Now, the one problem with that question is, there might be a few problems, but a couple that come to mind is, you know, we might be thinking, I, I don't want to give less than what I'm supposed to give. 
And then we also might be asking ourselves, you know, or might be asking, you know, I, I don't want to give more than what I'm supposed to give, right? If I find out that I'm giving, you know, $500 more than what is considered extremely generous, well, then I just lost $500, right? Well, that's not how, that's not what Jesus is trying to cultivate in us. That's not how we're called to give. Jesus wants the amount that has been placed on our hearts, and he wants it to be generous. It's noteworthy that, that the New Testament never mentions a percentage. In the Old Testament, we very clearly see this practice of 10%. These were tithes of obligation. They were not free will offerings. There was the tithe for the Levites, tithe for the feast, tithe for the poor. Altogether, came out to 23% of one's gross income. With the new covenant, the covenant of grace, enter Jesus. He doesn't come preaching 10%, though he doesn't throw it out. We, see, we don't see him doing that. Rather, he comes preaching generosity. He comes preaching to change hearts. Generosity is the new standard. Whereas the old covenant, we had 10%. With the new covenant, with hearts changed, we should be blowing that 10% out of the water. And if you're not giving regularly or proportionally, 10% is a good starting point. You know, I used, again, I used to work in the marketplace, right? I, I was on the leadership team and I saw all the salaries of, of the company. I know generally what salaries are. Worked with spreadsheets. I know the economics. There's a part of me that wants to say if starting at 10% is just not jiving with you, well, then start with 5% and then increase each year. The one problem that I have with that is that if I am lowering the standard of the challenge, then I am potentially depriving you of blessing. Because there is blessing and giving. It is more blessed to give than to receive, Acts 20, 35. Now, this may be a cringy message today. And maybe you're thinking, who are you to tell me, you know, how much to give? You don't know my story. If I don't know your story, I'd love to get to know, know your story. Hit me up for a cup of coffee. We can, we can do that. But know this. Neither I nor any pastor nor elder knows how much you give. And I'm not telling you how much to give. But also know this. Every single one of us makes choices with what we do with our money. And I'm simply asking us, are we making those choices in light of the resurrection? I worked for one company for 14, 15 years Received a number of promotions and raises. By the way, half of those raises I asked for. If you are new or entering the workforce and you want to pick my brain on that, please grab a cup of coffee with me. I'd be happy to help you. Early on when I received these raises, giving to the church was not top of mind. Rather, my first thoughts were always, what am I going to do to celebrate? What am I going to buy? And after a season, I was always asking, how can I get more? It's never enough, right? But as, as I matured as a follower of Christ, my priorities and desires changed. As one follows Christ, that's what happens. There's nothing sinful about a raise, but I distinctly remember one raise in particular. This was after a season of God working in my heart in this area of money and finances and generosity. The first thing I did after I received after I was informed of getting that raise was I went back to my computer and I sat down and I calculated how much more I was going to give to the church. And I don't tell you that story to let you know how morally great I am 
No, I tell you that story because it is a good memory of mine. It is one that I can look back and say, boy, thank you, Lord, for doing this in me. Only Jesus could have orchestrated that kind of scenario. When we loosen our grip on money, we're in a much, more pl- much better place. <clears throat> Every now and then I like to play this silly game with myself. I like to add up all the money that we've given to the church over the years, and, and I like to you know, just envision that number, and then um, I like to imagine that I can magically, magically refund everything that I've given to the church, and then I like to think about all the spectacular things that I can buy, and I kind of play out this silly hypothetical scenario in my head for a few moments, and then eventually the next phase of the silly game enters, right? I imagine the horror of never giving to God's church. Imagine the hole. Imagine the void. Imagine all the ways that God works in one, one's heart, gone in an instant. And so what is the next phase of the silly game? I come to God and I say, no, no, God, I would never want anything refunded. Lord, thank you for having this money. Lord, and help me to be more generous. Christians in eternity will never regret the money that they have given to the church. Paul is certainly someone who lived in the reality of the resurrection, so much so that he refused a salary. Now, that is not normative. Paul also makes clear in his letters that those that work in ministry are supposed to be paid, are supposed to be supported by the church. But Paul's heart was so radically changed by the gospel that on just about all practical levels, he was willing to do whatever it takes to advance the gospel at all costs. Not only was he generous with his money, he was also generous with his travels from what we see in these next few following verses. This collection was so important to Paul, and he wanted it to be held with the utmost integrity. And he tells the Corinthians, verses 3 and 4, hey, you know what, I don't even need to touch the money. Send your own people, and I will also send along a letter of accreditation. And if you need me to come with your people to bring it to Jerusalem, then I will do it. Just, just tell me what I need to do. I will do it. This guy traveled all over the Mediterranean. It's interesting when we trace where it is that he's traveled back in that time. Now these next seven verses, they talk about Paul's travels. Why did we read those? Why do we cover that here in this section as well because they have a lot to do with these first four verses in that Paul was making his travel plans so that he could oversee this very important collection, this collection that shows to the watching world who Jesus is, that Christians care for one another and they care for their neighbors, whether right next to us or across the globe. What do we learn from Paul's travels here? We spent most of our time talking about money. In verses 5 through 11, he labors to manage the collection across churches and labors to cultivate hearts toward generosity, all the while preaching and teaching the gospel wherever he travels. He was generous. Look at the way verses 6 and 7 read. Paul says to the Corinthians, perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. Paul had a very large heart for the church of Corinth, even though it's very clear throughout the letter that they had a very rocky relationship. He had a generous heart for them. 
Remember what I said earlier, these practical logistical marks and personal touches Paul adds at the end of these letters, we get a clear glimpse of a man whose heart, who, that was, whose heart was clearly changed by Jesus. Despite any troubles and tensions, we still find a man who wanted to be with them. We still find a man who would not let any roadblocks get in the way of the mission that God has given him. And if cultivating generosity was going to require him to make all kinds of arduous travels back to Corinth, well then for him, so be it. Nothing should get in the way of the Lord's work, verse 10. And a note on that point about roadblocks in verses 8 through 9, it seems he can find room to embrace potential roadblocks. Paul wrote this letter again when he was in Ephesus. And look what he says in verse 9, For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. And hear this phrase, and there are many adversaries, right? It's very interesting that he couples effective door for ministry, adversaries, as if those two things go together. Adversaries, just because it is hard does not mean it is not God's will. Laboring to spread the gospel is not supposed to be comfortable. And giving is not supposed to be comfortable. And you should expect resistance if you are doing something for the Lord, mainly because God wants you to tap into his strength. Because when we tap into his strength, we gain maturity, we gain perseverance, we gain character. And when we enter hard situations, we often find ourselves desiring more of Jesus. Jesus who creates in us a heart that helps us see that generosity is far greater than any worldly riches themselves. And here's an important layer to generosity. As followers of Christ, even though we make choices to be more generous, we actually do not seek generosity. We seek Jesus. It's when we realize that despite all the holding back we are guilty of, Jesus will never hold himself back from us. He's the one who's more than willing to walk alongside each of us no matter where we find ourselves walking. He's the one who will always say the most loving words to us even when we don't have loving words for him. He's the one who comes running toward us even when we are running away from him. He's the one who loves us so much that he gave the most generous gift in all of history, the gift of himself at the cross. Jesus made himself poor so that we could have it all. When we follow Jesus, we become more like Jesus. We live in the reality of the resurrection. When we do that, we find we can only want more of Jesus. When we get more of him, followers of Jesus aren't living out generosity for generosity's sake. No, follower of Jesus, Jesus live out generosity because Jesus is at the center of, because generosity is at the center of Jesus' heart. A heart for the poor, a heart for the city, a heart for the lost, a heart for the broken, a heart for you and me. When we live in the reality of the resurrection, our desires change. When we live in the reality of the resurrection, we go from self-centered to God-centered. When we live in the reality of the resurrection, we know how the story ends. When we live in the reality of the resurrection, we become more generous. And it has been said, we've never really learned to worship the Lord until we have learned to give. What does it mean to give to the Lord? We read Jesus' words about generosity. 
We see Paul's accounts of his arduous travels. We see God giving us the greatest gift of history, the gift of his son. When we look back on our giving, unlike the rich young ruler, can we say that we have been faithful in giving to the Lord? Let's pray. Father, you are the one who is generous first. It's what allows us to give with joy and cheerfulness in our hearts. We thank you so much, Father, for this opportunity to partner with you in your mission, Lord. We could be doing so many other things, and yet, Father, you have revealed your Son to us. And so, Father, we just ask again, Lord, for you to send your Spirit. Lord, help us to search our hearts, Father. Expose to us those places, Father, where we might be holding back. Father, would you be our guide, our counsel, our help? Would you gift us more of Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen.